0: Live show, end of October. Dracula will be there. Will you?
1: Dracula by Bram Stoker. Presented by the Oakville Players. Previously, Lucy receives three proposals and accepts her true love, Arthur's. Heartbroken, Dr. Seward starts a phonograph diary to describe the symptoms of his patient, the lunatic Renfield. Jonathan finds his way into Dracula's crypt, but he is unable to destroy his captor or leave the castle. The Count has 50 large boxes transported down the mountain on Jonathan's last day. I am alone in this castle with those awful women. I shall try to scale the castle wall farther than I have yet attempted. Episode 3. A Fleeting Diorama of Light and Shade.
2: First July. Renfield's spiders are now becoming as great a nuisance as his flies, and today I told him that he must clear out some of them at all events. he cheerfully acquiesced in this, and I gave him the same time as before for reduction. He disgusted me much while with him, for when a horrid blowfly, bloated with some carrion food, buzzed into the room, he caught it, held it exultantly for a few moments between his finger and thumb, And before I knew what he was going to do, put it in his mouth and ate it. I scolded him for it. It is very
3: good and very awesome. It is life, strong life, and gives life to
2: me. I must watch how he gets rid of his spiders. 8th July There is a method in his madness. A rudimentary idea in my mind is growing. It will be a whole idea soon. Things remain as they were, except that he has parted with some of his pets and got a new one. He has managed to get a sparrow and has already partially tamed it. His means of taming is simple, for already the spiders have diminished. Those that do remain, however, are well fed, for he still brings in the flies by tempting them with his food.
0: of the Demeter, Varna to Whitby. 18th of July. Things so strange happening that I shall keep accurate note henceforth till we land. On 6th July, we finished taking in cargo, silver, sand, and boxes of earth. At noon, set sail. East wind, fresh, crew, five hands, two mates, cook, and myself, Captain. On 11th July, at dawn, entered Bosphorus, underway at 4 p.m. On 12th July, through Dardanelles, at dark, passed through Archipelago. On 13th July, passed Cape Matapan. Crew dissatisfied about something. Seemed scared, but the woods not speak out. On 14th July... Was somewhat anxious about crew. Men, all steady fellows, who sailed with me before. Mate could not make out what was wrong. They only told him that there was something and crossed themselves. On 16th July, Mate reported in the morning that one of the crew, Petrovsky, was missing. Could not account for it. Men more downcast than ever, All said they expected something of the kind, but would not say more than there was something aboard, made getting very impatient with them. On 17th July, yesterday, one of the men confided to me that he thought there was a strange man aboard the ship. He said that in his watch he saw a tall, thin man who was not like any of the crew come up the companionway and disappear. He followed cautiously, but when he got to Bows, found no one. He was in a panic of superstitious fear, and I am afraid the panic may spread. Later in day, I got together the whole crew and told them we would search the ship from stem to stern. First mate angry, he said it was folly, and to yield to such foolish ideas would demoralize the men. I let him take the helm, while the rest began thorough search with lanterns. We left no corner unsearched. As there were only big wooden boxes, there were no odd corners where a man could hide. Men much relieved when searched over, and went back to work cheerfully.
2: First mate scowled. But said nothing. 19th July. We are progressing. My friend now has a whole colony of sparrows, and his flies and spiders are almost obliterated. When I came in, he ran to me and said he wanted to ask me a great favor. A very, very great favor. A
3: kitten. A nice, little, sleek, playful kitten that I can play with
2: and teach and feed, and feed, and feed. I was not unprepared for this request, for I had noticed how his pets went on increasing in size and vivacity, but I did not care that his pretty family of tame sparrows should be wiped out in the same manner as the flies and the spiders. I was firm, however, and told him that he could not have it. His face fell, and I could see a warning of danger in it, for there was a sudden, fierce look which meant killing. The man is an undeveloped homicidal maniac. 20th July Visited Renfield very early. Found him up and humming a tune. He was spreading out his sugar, which he had saved in the window, and was manifestly beginning his fly-catching again. I looked round for his birds, and not seeing them, asked him where they were. He replied, without turning round, that they had all flown away. I said nothing, but went and told the keeper to report to me if there were anything odd about him during the day. 11 a.m. The attendant has just been to me to say that Renfield has been very sick and has disgorged a whole lot of feathers. 11 p.m. The thought has been buzzing about my brain lately is complete, and the theory proved My homicidal maniac is of a peculiar kind. I shall have to invent a new classification for him and call him a zoophagous, life-eating maniac. What he desires is to absorb as many lives as he can, and he has laid himself out to achieve it in a cumulative way. He gave many flies to one spider and many spiders to one bird, and then wanted a cat to eat the many birds. What would have been his later steps? It would almost be worthwhile to complete the experiment, Men sneered at vivisection and yet look at its results today. I wonder it, how many lives he values a man, or if it only one. He has closed the account of his last project and today begun a new one. How many of us begin a new record with each day of our lives? To me, it seems only yesterday that my whole life ended with my new hope, and that truly I began a new record. Oh, Lucy, Lucy. I cannot be angry with you, nor can I be angry with my friend, whose happiness is yours. But I must only wait on hopeless and work. Work, work.
0: Lord of the Dimitri. 22nd July Rough weather lasts three days, and all hands busy with sails, no time to be frightened. Men seem to have forgotten their dread, made cheerful again, and all on good terms. Gibraltar and out through straits, all well. 24th July There seems to be some doom over the ship, last night Another man lost, disappeared, like the first, he came off his watch and was not seen again. Men, all in a panic of fear, A feared to be alone, made angry, fear there will be some trouble as either he or the man will do some violence.
4: July Whitby. Lucy met me at the station looking sweeter and lovelier than ever and we drove up to the house at the crescent. This is a lovely place. The little river, the Esk, runs through a deep valley which broadens out as it comes near the harbour. The houses of the old town are all red roofed and seemed piled up one over the other. Right over the town is the ruin of Whitby Abbey. It is a most noble ruin of immense size and full of beautiful and romantic bits. There is another church, Parish One, round which is a big graveyard, all full of tombstones. This is, to my mind, the nicest spot in Whitby, for it lies right over the town and has a full view of the harbor to the sea. There are walks with seats beside them through the churchyard, and people go and sit there all day long looking at the beautiful view and enjoying the breeze. I shall come and sit here very often myself and work. Indeed, I am writing now, my book on my knee. 26th July. I am anxious, and it soothes me to express myself here. It is like whispering to oneself and listening at the same time. And there is also something about the shorthand symbols that make it different from writing. I have not heard from Jonathan for some time and was very concerned. But yesterday, dear Mr. Hawkins, who is always so kind, sent me a letter from him. I had written asking him if he had heard and he said the enclosed had just been received. It is only a line dated from Castle Dracula and says that he is just starting for home. That is not like Jonathan. I do not understand it and it makes me uneasy. Then, too, Lucy, although she is so well, has lately taken to her old habit of walking in her sleep. Her mother has spoken to me about it, and we have decided that I am to lock the door of our room every night. Lucy is to be married in the autumn, and she is already planning out her dresses and how her house is to be arranged. I do the same, only Jonathan and I will start in life in a very simple way, and she'll have to try to make both ends meet. Mr. Homewood, he is the Honorable Arthur Homewood, only son of Lord Godalming, is coming up here very shortly, as soon as he can leave town, for his father is not very well. And I think dear Lucy is counting the moments till he comes. 27th July. No news from Jonathan. I am getting quite uneasy about him, though why I should, I do not know. But I do wish that he would write if it were only a single line. Lucy walks in her sleep more than ever, and each night I am awakened by her moving about the room. Mr. Homewood has been suddenly called to see his father, who has been taken seriously ill. Lucy frets at the postponement of seeing him.
0: Log of the Demeter, 28th of July. Four days in hell, knocking about in a sort of maelstrom, and the wind a tempest. No sleep for anyone, men all worn out. Hardly know how to set a watch since no one fit to go on. 29th July, another tragedy. A single watch tonight has crew too tired to double. When morning watch came on deck, could find no one except steersman raised outcry, and all came on deck, thorough search but found no one, are now without second mate, and crew in a panic, mate and I agreed to go armed henceforth, and wait for any sign of cause, 30th July, last night, rejoiced, we are nearing England, weather fine, all sail set, wait by mate telling me that both man-of-watch and the steersman missing. Only self and mate and two hands left to work ship. 1st August. Two days of fog and not a sail sighted. Had hoped, when in the English Channel to be able to signal for help or to get in somewhere. We seemed to be drifting to some terrible doom.
4: journal first august i haven't heard from jonathan for a whole month the clock has just struck nine i see the lights scattered all over the town they run right up the esk and die away in the curve of the valley i wonder where jonathan is and if he is thinking of me oh i wish he were here
0: Log of the Demeter, 2nd August, midnight. Woke up from few minutes sleep by hearing a cry. Could see nothing in fog. One more, gone. Lord, help us. Mate says we must be past streets of Dover, if so. We are now off in the North Sea, and only God can guide us in the fog, which seems to move with us. And God seems to have deserted us. Third August. At midnight, I went to relieve the man at the wheel. And when I got to it, found no one there. The wind was steady. I dared not leave it, so shouted for the mate. And after a few seconds, he rushed up on deck in his flannels. He looked wide-eyed and haggard. And I greatly fear his reason has given way. It is here. I know it now. On the watch last night, I saw it like a man, tall and thin and ghastly pale. I crept behind it and gave it my knife, but the knife went through it, empty as the air. And as he spoke, he took his knife and drove it savagely into space. It is in the hold, perhaps in one of those
3: boxes. I'll unscrew them one by one and see.
0: And with a warning look and his finger on his lip, he went below. There was springing up a choppy wind, and I could not leave the helm. He is mad, stark, raving, mad, and it's no use me trying to stop him. So here I stay and bind the helm and write these notes. It is nearly all over now. I heard him knocking away at something in the hold. There came up the hatchway a sudden, startled scream which made my blood run cold. And up on the deck, he came as if a shot from a gun, a raging madman with his eyes all rolling and his face convulsed with fear. Save me! Save me! Everywhere there is a blanket of fog. His horror turned to despair. You had better come to Captain before it is too late. He
3: is there! I know the secret now. The sea will save me from him, and it is all
0: that is left. But before I could say a word or move forward to seize him, he sprang on the bulwark and deliberately threw himself into the sea. Suppose I know the secret too now. It it was this madman who got rid of the men one by one. Now he has followed them himself.
4: Journal, 3rd August. Another week gone and no news from Jonathan. Not even to Mr. Hawkins. Oh, I do hope he is not ill. He surely would have written. I look at that last letter of his, but somehow it does not satisfy me. It does not read like him, and yet it is his writing. Lucy has not walked much in her sleep the last week, but there is an odd concentration about her which I do not understand. Even in her sleep, she seems to be watching me. She tries the door and finding it locked, goes about the room searching for the key.
0: Log of the Demeter, 4th August. Steel fog which the sunrise cannot pierce. I know there is sunrise because I am a sailor. I dare not go below. I dare not leave the helm. So here, all night, in the dimness of the night, I saw it. Him! God forgive me, but the mate was right to jump overboard. It was better to die like a man, to die like a sailor. But I am captain, and I must not leave my ship. But I shall baffle this fiend or monster, for I shall tie my hands to the wheel when my strength begins to fail, and then, come wind or foul, I shall save my soul and my honor as a captain. I am growing weaker, the night is coming on. If we are wrecked, mayhap this bottle may be found, and those who find it may understand. If not, well, then all men shall know that I have been true to my trust. God, and the Blessed Virgin, and all these saints, Kill a poor ignorant soul, trying to do his duty!
4: Journal, 6th August. Another three days and no news. This suspense is getting dreadful. If I only knew where to write to or where to go to, I should feel easier. But no one has heard a word of Jonathan since that last letter. Lucy is more excitable than ever, but is otherwise well. Last night was very threatening and the fishermen say we are in for a storm. Today is a grey day. And the sun, as I write, is hidden in thick clouds high over Kettle Ness. The sea is tumbling in over the shallows and the sandy flats with a roar, muffled in the sea mists drifting inland. The horizon is lost in a grey mist. I was glad when the Coast Guard came along with his spyglass under his arm. He stopped to talk with me, as he always does, pointing out a strange ship in the distance.
3: I'll make it out. She's rushing by the look of her, but she's knocking about in the queerest way. He seems to see the storm coming but can't decide whether to put in here. She has stared mighty strangely. Changes about with every puff of wind. We'll hear more of her before this time tomorrow. The Daily Graph. 8th August, Whitby. One of the greatest and suddenest storms on record has just been experienced here, with results both strange and unique. Saturday evening was as fine as ever known. The wind fell away entirely during the evening, and at midnight there was a dead calm, a sultry heat. The only sail noticeable was a foreign schooner with all sails set, which was seemingly going westwards. Efforts were made to signal to her to reduce sail in face of her danger. Before the night shut down, she was seen with sails idly flapping. Then, without warning, the tempest broke. With a rapidity which at the time seemed incredible, the whole aspect of nature at once became convulsed. The waves rose in growing fury, till in a very few minutes the lately glassy sea was like a roaring and devouring monster. The wind roared like thunder and blew with such force that it was with difficulty that even strong men kept their feet. To add to the difficulties and dangers of the time, masses of fog came drifting inland, white, wet clouds which swept by in ghostly fashion so dank and damp and cold that it needed but little effort of imagination to think that the spirits of those lost at sea were touching their living brethren with the clammy hands of death. The searchlight discovered some distance away a schooner with all sails set, apparently the same vessel which had been noticed earlier in the evening. The wind suddenly shifted to the northeast, and the remnant of the sea fog melted in the blast, and then At headlong speed, the strange schooner gained the safety of the harbour. The searchlight followed her, and a shudder ran through all who saw her. For lashed to the helm was a corpse with drooping head which swung horribly to and fro at each motion of the ship. No other form could be seen on deck at all, as if by a miracle the ship had found the harbour unsteered save by the hand of a dead man. Strangest of all, the very instant the shore was touched, an immense dog sprang up on the deck from below, as if shot by the impact, and running forward, jumped from the bow on the sand, it disappeared in the darkness. By the courtesy of the chief boatman, this reporter was permitted to climb on deck, and was one of a small group who saw the dead seaman whilst actually lashed to the wheel. The man was simply fastened by his hands tied one over the other to a spoke of the wheel. Between the inner hand and the wood was a crucifix. The doctor declared after making examination that the man must have been dead for quite two days. In his pocket was a bottle carefully corked, empty save for a little roll of paper which proved to be the log. The coast guard said the man must have tied up his own hands, fastening the knots with his teeth. The body has been reverently removed from the place where he held his honorable watch and ward till death and placed in the mortuary to await inquest.
4: Journal, 8th August. Lucy was very restless all night, and I too could not sleep. The storm was fearful, and as it boomed loudly among the chimney pots, it made me shudder. Strangely enough, Lucy did not wake. Early in the morning, we both got up and went down to the harbour to see if anything had happened in the night. There were very few people about. Somehow, I felt glad that Jonathan was not on the sea last night, but on land. But, oh, is he on land or sea? Where is he and how? I am getting fearfully anxious about him.
3: The Daily Graph, 9th August, Whitby. The sequel to the strange arrival of the derelict in the storm last night is almost more startling than the thing itself. It turns out that the schooner is Russian, from Varna, and is called the Demeter. She is almost entirely in the ballast of silver sand with only a small amount of cargo, a number of great wooden boxes filled with mold. This cargo was consigned to a Whitby solicitor, Mr. S.F. Billington, who this morning went aboard and formally took possession of the goods consigned to him. This reporter has looked into the logbook of the Demeter, which was in order up to within three days, but contained nothing of special interest, except as to the facts of missing men. It almost seems as though the captain had been seized with some kind of mania before he had got well into blue water. Of course, the verdict was an open one. There is no evidence whether or not the man committed the murders. The folk here hold almost universally that the captain is a hero, and he is to be given public funeral. He is to be buried in the churchyard on the cliff. A good deal of interest was abroad concerning the dog which landed when the ship struck— And more than a few of the members of the SPCA, which is very strong in Whitby, have tried to befriend the animal. To the general disappointment, however, it was not to be found, at which there is much mourning, for with public opinion in its present state, he would be adopted by the town. Tomorrow we will see the funeral, and so ends this one more Mystery of the Sea.
4: Journal, 10th August. The funeral of the poor sea captain today was most touching. Every boat in the harbour seemed to be there, and the coffin was carried by captains all the way to the churchyard. Lucy came with me. We had a lovely view and saw the procession nearly all the way. Poor Lucy seemed much upset. Lucy is so sweet and sensitive that she feels influences more acutely than other people do. I greatly fear that she is of too super-sensitive a nature to go through the world without trouble. She will be dreaming of this tonight, I am sure. I think it will be best for her to go to bed tired out physically, so I shall take her for a long walk by the cliffs and back. She ought not to have much inclination for sleepwalking then. 11 o'clock p.m. Oh, but I am tired! If it were not that I had made my diary a duty, I should not open it tonight. We had a lovely walk. Lucy, after a while, was in gay spirits, owing, I think, to some dear cows who came nosing towards us in a field close to the lighthouse. Lucy is asleep and breathing softly. She has more color in her cheeks than usual and looks, oh, so sweet. If Mr. Homewood fell in love with her, seeing her only in the drawing room, I wonder what he would say if he saw her now. Some of the new women writers will someday start an idea that men and women should be allowed to see each other asleep before proposing or accepting. But I suppose the new woman won't condescend in future to accept. She will do the proposing herself. And a nice job she will make of it too. There's some consolation in that. I am so happy tonight because dear Lucy seems better. I really believe she has turned the corner and that we are over her troubles with dreaming. I should be quite happy if I only knew if Jonathan... Oh, God bless and keep him. (music) Journal, 11th August, 3 a.m. No sleep now, so I may as well write. I am too agitated to sleep. We have had such an agonizing experience. I don't know what time it was when I awoke and sat up with a horrible sense of fear upon me. I lit a match and found that Lucy was not in the room. The door was shut but not locked as I had left it. I feared to wake her mother who has been more than usually ill lately so threw on some clothes to look for her. I ran downstairs and looked in the sitting room, not there. Then I looked in all the other open rooms of the house with an ever growing fear chilling my heart. Finally, I came to the hall door and found it open. There was no time to think of what might happen. A vague, overmastering fear obscured all details. I took a big, heavy shawl and ran out. The clock was striking one as I was in the crescent, and there was not a soul in sight. At the edge of the west cliff above the pier, I looked across the harbour to the east cliff in the hope, or fear, of seeing Lucy in our favourite seat. There was a bright, full moon with heavy, black, driving clouds which threw the whole scene into a fleeting diorama of light and shade as they sailed across. There, on our favourite seat, the silver light of the moon struck a half-reclining figure Snowy white. It seemed to me as though something dark stood behind the seat where the white figure shone, and bent over it. What it was, whether man or beast, I could not tell. I did not wait to catch another glance, but flew down the steep steps to the pier and along the bridge. The town seemed as dead, for not a soul did I see. I rejoiced that it was so, for I wanted no witness of poor Lucy's condition. I must have gone fast, and yet it seemed to me as if my feet were weighted with lead, and as though every joint in my body were rusty. When I got almost to the top, I could see the seat and the white figure. There was undoubtedly something, long and black, bending over. I called in fright, Lucy, Lucy, and something raised a head, And from where I was, I could see a white face and red gleaming eyes. Lucy did not answer, and I ran on to the entrance of the churchyard. The moonlight struck so brilliantly that I could see she was quite alone, and there was not a sign of any living thing about. Her lips were parted, and she was breathing, not softly as usual, but in long, heavy gasps, as though striving to get her lungs full at every breath. As I came close... She put up her hand in her sleep and pulled the collar of her nightdress close around her throat. I flung my warm shawl over her and drew the edges tight around her neck, for I dreaded lest she should get some deadly chill from the night air, unclad as she was. I fastened the shawl at her throat with a big safety pin. But I must have been clumsy in my anxiety, and pinched or pricked her with it, for by and by, when her breathing became quieter, she put her hand to her throat again and moaned. I shook her forcibly, till finally she opened her eyes and woke. She trembled a little, and clung to me. When I told her to come at once with me home, she rose without a word, with the obedience of a child. Fortune favoured us, and we got home without meeting a soul. My heart beat so loud all the time that sometimes I thought I should faint. I was filled with anxiety about Lucy, not only for her health, lest she should suffer from the exposure, but for her reputation, in case the story should get wind. When we got in, I tucked her into bed. Before falling asleep, she asked, even implored me not to say a word to anyone. Even her mother. I hesitated at first to promise, but on thinking of the state of her mother's health and thinking, too, of how such a story might become distorted in case it should leak out, I thought it wiser to do so. I hope I did right. I have locked the door, and the key is tied to my wrist, so perhaps I shall not be again disturbed. Noon. Lucy slept till I woke her, and seemed not to have even changed her side. The adventure of the night has not harmed her. On the contrary, it has benefited her for she looks better this morning than she has done for weeks. I shall lock the door and secure the key tomorrow and not expect any more trouble. I was sorry to notice that my clumsiness with the safety pin hurt her. Indeed, it might have been serious for the skin of her throat was pierced must have pinched up a piece of loose skin and have transfixed it, for there are two little red points like pinpricks, and on the band of her nightdress was a drop of blood. When I apologized and was concerned about it, she laughed and petted me and said she did not even feel it. Fortunately, it cannot leave a scar, as it is so tiny. Journal, 12th August. My expectations were wrong, for twice during the night I was wakened by Lucy trying to get out. She seemed, even in her sleep, to be a little impatient at finding the door shut and went back to bed under a sort of protest. I woke with the dawn. Lucy woke too, and I was glad to see was even better than on the previous morning. All her old gaiety of manner seemed to have come back, and she came and snuggled in beside me and told me all about Arthur. I told her how anxious I was about Jonathan, and then she tried to comfort me. Well, she succeeded somewhat, for though sympathy can't alter facts, it can help to make them more bearable. journal 13th August another quiet day and to bed with the key on my wrist as before again I awoke in the night and found Lucy sitting up in bed still asleep pointing to the window I got up quietly and pulling aside the blind looked out it was brilliant moonlight and the soft effect of the light over the sea was beautiful beyond words between me and the moonlight flitted a great bat in great whirling circles. Once or twice it came quite close, but was, I suppose, frightened at seeing me and flitted away across the harbour towards the abbey. When I came back from the window, Lucy had laid down again and was sleeping peacefully. She did not stir again all night. Journal. 14th August. This afternoon, Lucy made a funny remark. We were coming home for dinner and had come to the top of the steps near the abbey by our seat and stopped to look at the view as we generally do. The setting sun, low down in the sky, red light was thrown over the old abbey and seemed to bathe everything in a beautiful rosy glow. We were silent for a while, and then suddenly, his red eyes again... They are just the same. It was such an odd expression, coming apropos of nothing, that it quite startled me. She appeared to be looking over at our own seat. Whereon was a dark figure, seated alone. I was a little startled myself, for it seemed for an instant, as if the stranger had great eyes like burning flames. But a second look dispelled the illusion. The red sunlight was shining on the windows of St. Mary's Church behind our seat, and I called Lucy's attention to the peculiar effect. Lucy had a headache and went early to bed. I saw her asleep and went out for a little stroll myself. I walked along the cliffs to the westward, thinking of Jonathan. I threw a glance up at our window and saw Lucy's head leaning out, her head lying against the side of the windowsill, and her eyes shut. She was fast asleep, and by her was something that looked like a good-sized bird. I was afraid she might get a chill, so I ran upstairs. But as I came into the room, she was moving back to her bed, fast asleep, and breathing heavily. She was holding her hand to her throat, as though to protect it from cold. I did not wake her, but tucked her up warmly. I have taken care that the door is locked and the window securely fastened. There is a drawn, haggard look under her eyes which I do not like. I fear she is fretting about something. 15th August, rose later than usual. Lucy was languid and tired. We had a happy surprise at breakfast. Arthur's father is better and wants the marriage to come off soon. Lucy is full of quiet joy and her mother is glad and sorry at once. Later in the day, she told me she is grieved to lose Lucy as her very own, but she is rejoiced that she is soon to have someone to protect her. She confided to me that she has got her death warrant. She has not told Lucy and made me promise secrecy. Her doctor told her within a few months at most she will die for her heart is weakening. At any time, even now, a sudden shock would be almost sure to kill her. Ah, we were wise to keep from her the affair of the dreadful night of Lucy's sleepwalking. 17th August. Some sort of shadowy pall seems to be coming over our happiness. No news from Jonathan. And Lucy seems to be growing weaker whilst her mother's hours are numbering to a close. I do not understand Lucy's fading away as she is doing. She eats well and sleeps well and enjoys the fresh air. But all the time the roses in her cheeks are fading and she gets weaker and more languid day by day. At night, I hear her gasping as if for air. I keep the key to our door always fastened to my wrist at night, but she gets up and walks about the room and sits at the open window. I looked at her throat just now as she lay asleep, and the tiny wounds seem not to have healed. They are still open and, if anything, larger than before, and they are faintly white. They are like little white dots with red centers.
3: Letter from Samuel F. Billington & Sons, solicitors Whitby to Messieurs Carter, Patterson & Company, London, 17th August. Dear Sirs, Herewith please receive invoice of goods sent by Great Northern Railway. You will please deposit the boxes, 50 in number, in the partially ruined building forming part of the house in marked A on the rough diagram enclosed, the ancient chapel of the mansion at Carfax, Perfleet. We are, dear Sirs, Faithfully yours, Samuel F. Billington and Sons, Solicitors.
4: Journal, 18th August. Lucy is ever so much better Last night she slept well all night and did not disturb me once. She is in gay spirits and full of life and cheerfulness. All the morbid reticence seems to have passed from her. I asked if she had dreamed at all last night. Before she answered, that sweet puckered look came into her forehead, which Arthur says he loves, and indeed I don't wonder that he does. Then she went on in a half dreaming kind of way, as if trying to recall it to herself.
1: I didn't quite dream, but it all seemed to be real. I was afraid of something, I don't know what. I remember, though I suppose I was asleep, passing through the streets and over the bridge. I heard a lot of dogs howling. The whole town seemed as if it must be full of dogs all howling at once, as I went up the steps. I had a vague memory of something long and dark with red eyes, just as we saw in the sunset. And something very sweet and very bitter all around me. And then I seemed to be sinking into deep green water. And there was a singing in my ears, as I have heard there is to drowning men. My soul seemed to go out from my body and float about the air. There was a sort of agonizing feeling, as if I were in an earthquake. I came back and found you shaking my body. I saw you do it before I felt you. (laughs) Then she began to
4: laugh. It seemed a little uncanny to me, and I listened to her breathlessly. I did not quite like it. And I thought it better not to keep her mind on the subject.
2: 19th August. A strange and sudden change in Renfield last night. About eight o'clock, he began to get excited and sniff about as a dog does when setting. I don't want to talk to you. You don't count now. The master is at hand. It must be some form of religious mania which has seized him. A strong man with homicidal and religious mania at once might be dangerous. The combination is a dreadful one. I did not pretend to be watching him, but I kept strict observation all the same. He became quite quiet and went and sat on the edge of his bed resignedly and looked into space with lacklustre eyes. I am weary tonight and low in spirits. I cannot but think of Lucy and how different things might have been. Later, a night watchman came to me, sent up from the ward, to say that Renfield had escaped. I threw on my clothes and ran down at once. The attendant was waiting for me. He said he had seen him not ten minutes before and saw his feet disappear through the window. He cannot be far off. I got out the same way, but feet foremost, and, as we were only a few feet above ground, landed unhurt. I saw a white figure scale the high wall which separates our grounds from those of the deserted house. I told the attendant to get three or four men immediately and follow me into the grounds of Carfax. I got a ladder myself and, crossing the wall, dropped down on the other side. I could see Renfield's figure just disappearing behind the angle of the house, so I ran after him. On the far side of the house, I found him pressed close against the old iron bound oak door of the chapel. He was talking, apparently to someone. I am here to do your bidding, master.
3: I am your slave. You will reward me, for I shall be faithful. I worship you long and afar off.
2: Now that you are near, I await your commands. When we closed in on him, he fought like a tiger. He is immensely strong, for he was more like a wild beast than a man. I never saw a lunatic in such a paroxysm of rage before, and I hope I shall not again. He is safe now at any rate. A straight waistcoat keeps him restrained, and he is chained to the wall in the padded room. His cries are at times awful, but the silences that follow are more deadly still, for he means murder in every turn and movement. I shall be patient, Master. It is coming!
3: Coming! Coming.
1: Dracula the Radio Play miniseries. Episode 3, cast. Heather Smith as Mina.
2: Kenneth Sergienko as Dr. Seward.
3: Duncan Cairns as Renfield. First mate, Coast Guard,
0: reporter, lawyer.
2: Robert Harrower as Captain of the Demeter.
1: Tina Aurora as Lucy. Directed and edited by Robin Sadovoy and produced by Alex Ragosino for the Oakville Players. For information about Creative Commons licensed music used in this episode, see the episode description. Sound effects from Pixabay and Freesound.org.
3: Duncan Cairns as Renfield, first mate, Coast Guard reporter. <laughs> reporter. They
0: asked me to play the reporter, and I said sure.